Welcome, everybody. Um, my name is Eric Brown. I work here at Hudson Institute. I'm delighted that all of you could come here for what uh, I think will be a very interesting discussion on what is, I think, the most interesting uh, set of relations in all of Asia, frankly, and potentially one of the most strategically consequential relationships in the 21st century. That is the China-Pakistan relationship. I am uh, sorry to report that uh, Hussein Haqqani, our colleague here at Hudson Institute, uh, uh, has bogged down in Chicago uh, in O'Hare Airport uh, because of some bad weather there. Um, so I don't think he's going to be able to join us for this panel. He may swoop in in the last minute, and if we have some space for him, I'd love to solicit some of his ideas. Um, but fortunately, my colleague and friend, uh, Parna Pandey, uh, uh, the director of uh, Hudson's uh, South Asia Initiative, has uh, agreed to sit in and to, to offer some remarks off the cuff on, on what this very important uh, China-Pakistan relationship means from the perspective of India. Um, and so I'm grateful for Aparna for filling in for Hussein. Um, China's One Belt, One Road plan, uh, as everybody know, has rightly received worldwide attention as one of the most ambitious infrastructure projects, uh, project plans in all of history. As it is envisioned, uh, it will place China at the center of an expanding network of new overland and sea routes that will connect East Asia, including China itself, but also the Pacific Rim countries of uh, the Northeast and Indochina, with West Asia eventually, and also with Europe, and one day uh, as well Africa. Uh, if it is realized, the so-called 21st century Silk Road could one day connect 63 countries, and through this it will come to transform how two-thirds of the world's humanity interacts politically and economically. This will, uh, uh, to put it mildly, have far-reaching geopolitical implications for uh, 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 the world for, for the deep structure of power across Eurasia and for American interests and American security policy on both sides of the Eurasian world island, both in the Pacific as well as in the Persian Gulf, and also, I think, increasingly as well in Europe. Already here in the U.S. Uh, and in Delhi, in, in, in Japan and elsewhere around the world, people are scrambling to make sense of what all these new developments mean for their own national development policies and for their own security going forward. In Pakistan, um, as we know, the country's leaders there uh, are, are used to conceiving of their country as being the pivot of the world. And uh, in many respects, over the course of the last 50, 60 years, they have, in fact, played a very pivotal role in some of the great geopolitical uh, competitions and churnings that have defined uh, uh, Asian, intra-Asian relations. I think in very um, significant ways, Pakistan is the pivot of the world once again. It's where the rising, uh, Chinese, rising Chinese power is increasingly involving itself uh, in West Asia, um, in the Middle East, and uh, it's this relationship which, uh, if consummated, uh, has real uh, broad, far-reaching implications for uh, the Persian Gulf as well as for the Pacific Rim. China says it will invest upwards of $46 billion um, uh, in, uh, in developing mega projects in Pakistan. This includes roads, railways, pipelines, and other kinds of infrastructure, which is designed to create, if you will, uh, not just a road connecting China to the Arabian Gulf, but also uh, uh, infrastructure which will create a self-sustaining economy in Pakistan itself. And it's the expectation that this investment 
in Pakistan will in time alleviate and ameliorate some of the, some of the poverty in Pakistan and some of the ethnic faction and religious unrest that we're seeing in Pakistan that is certainly um, uh, very appealing to uh, uh, ordinary people in Pakistan and certainly has been useful for Pakistan's politician and s politicians in selling this uh, Chinese involvement in their country over the long run. To put this into perspective, this $46 billion that China has said it will bring online is roughly three times the amount of FDI that's come into Pakistan since 2008. And also since 9-11, uh, uh, I think it was tallied up that the United States has provided roughly $14 billion worth of security assistance to Pakistan. So again, um, this uh, eco uh, Chinese economic development uh, dwarfs uh, most of what is going into Pakistan right now. And through this investment, I think it's very uh, uh, likely that, that China seeks to acquire uh, uh, influence uh, in Islamabad as well as in Rawalpindi. Um, up until relatively recently, the so-called rise of China was largely conceived as, as being primarily a maritime or an oceans-oriented phenomenon. In the first 30 years of its existence, the Pe People's Republic of China, uh, despite uh, Mao Zedong's uh, modern radicalism, uh, had in a way attempted to replicate some of the empire-building strategies of previous Chinese dynasties. They sought to create an autarky and largely a land-based uh, economy that was self-sustaining and able to be able to sustain itself on its own terms and through its own <laughs> domestic uh, industry and resources. Um, this proved to be uh, uh, very difficult to do historically, and under modern conditions, it proved uh, to be uh, uh, an impossibility. Um, and therefore, after the death of Mao Zedong in 1976, the Communist Party abruptly shifted both its internal economic arrangements and its international alliances toward the sea. It entered the global commercial and financial system and was supported in this by the US and also by other maritime nations, including Japan. Together, these created the most benign security environment that I think China and any Chinese-based polity has seen over the last 200 years. Um, and it was through uh, China's deepening interaction with this benign security and commercial environment that, that the so-called rise of China was launched. I think future historians, however, will look back at 2008 and more recent times <coughs> and see that we've reached a new inflection point in China's rise. The worldwide financial crisis of 2008 and uh, the consequential uh, rolling economic and political crisis in China itself has once again started, if you will, a reappraisal for the ruling party in China about how best to pursue its rise. And for the party itself, the question is, what is the best strategy for maintaining its monopoly on power in China? We've seen since then, just over the last decade, a real reappraisal of China's grand strategy and, and, and uh, a recentering, if you will, of China's grand strategy where, where, where uh, various Factions in the government, uh, businesses, and elsewhere have increasingly said uh, China should no longer simply pursue um, uh, its, its rise at sea, but also uh, it should deepen and put greater emphasis on building out new kinds of connections with the uh, Eurasian landmass on the continent. There are, I think, a number of different reasons which are driving this. Uh, uh, people have uh, leapt to ascribe various geopolitical ambitions to this, um, uh, to this, uh, to this new, to these new developments. Uh, there are clearly also domestic factors at play, 
In China, it's very difficult to look at any, any kind of external conduct uh, of the Chinese regime without looking, too, at what the actual domestic sources of, of that conduct are. Um, but it's also clear that I don't think that this is going to end anytime soon, um, and that we're likely going to see uh, much, much greater involvement on the Eurasian landmass by China in the years ahead. Uh, the ruling factions um, in, in both Pakistan and in China uh, uh, have looked at this, I think, as an opportunity um, to solidify a strategic partnership, but also to further their own uh, politics domestically. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, and I think we're going to see uh, some very interesting um, uh, 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 consequences from this in parts of China that are wherein the PRC is attempting to establish much, much more control, such as Tibet and then Xinjiang. But we're also seeing, um, along with the announcement of China's investment in Pakistan, um, an effort by the Pakistani army uh, to, uh, uh, to raise a force uh, to bring Pakistani state power uh, deeper into parts of Pakistan where it hasn't existed before. And by that, I mean Baluchistan and parts of Gilgit-Baltistan, which uh, abut uh, Xinjiang and other places. Um, uh, as I mentioned, all of this is uh, beginning to change uh, uh, the way in which uh, different uh, countries of Eurasia think about their development strategies and their security strategies going, for, going forward. All of this is quite new, and um, uh, we're here to explore some of the implications of this over the coming years. Um, uh, uh, we have an all-Hudson panel here, um, but I think that our speakers uh, represent a diversity of perspectives on this very complex set of relations. Um, I'd like to begin with uh, Charles Horner, who is a, a sinologist uh, by training and author of uh, some books and articles on China, um, as well as a book, a soon-to-released book, which is the second volume of the series, Rising China's uh, Postmodern Fate. Uh, Charles. Well, thank you, and thank all of you for coming, and it's always nice to be here on the team of Hudson. Hudson All-Stars are all our old Hudson team. A few years ago, uh, actually, uh, mostly Eric, and but I will say Eric and I decided we would invent a new field of inquiry, which we called cynic Islamic relations. And the idea here was to understand, if I may use some academic lingo, the interaction between the Islamic world and the Chinese world in many different ways, uh, intellectual, political, economic, and so on. And as we began this, we noticed that uh, PRC as a state interacted with all kinds of predominantly Islamic societies in many different places. But the one thing they had in common from PRC's point of view was that if PRC were ever to emerge as uh, the great power, if not of its own dreams, then at least of its cheerleaders, it was going to have to figure out how to manage these relationships, and they're all very different. Some of them, as Eric said, are maritime. Indonesia, for example, is a Muslim country in which uh, China has a relationship with the people who ethnically dominate the economy. And so is, so is Malaysia. And so is Bangladesh. Uh, and so are all the countries of, 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 of Central Asia, all nearby. 
a reminder of the extraordinary diversity of the Islamic world and a reminder that we always need to remind ourselves in this business that among all of the Muslims in the world, the, the Arabs are, well, probably uh, smaller, than, smaller, than, smaller than one quarter. So as we began to think about this, then the idea was to use some more academic lingo to locate, to locate cynic Islamic relations in what we called a, a, a kind of world uh, a kind of world setting and the relationship among the various parts and how they work. Uh, we were reminded of this this morning when in the midst of the latest, uh, let's say, crisis involving ISIS and uh, Europe and the United States, the President of the United States actually left and went to Manila. Uh, and so the question would be, how are these things related? And they are, and they are related in, in some ways, I think, in the PRC strategic mind. So it's important to look upon this uh, in, in a world, you know, in a world context, that what happens in one place is connected to other places and is a kind of uh, uh, shifting uh, uh, picture, kind of kaleidoscopic uh, in, that, in, in that sense. Now the other th thing that we got interested in as we began to think about this some more was what we call the, the, uh, the continental versus the maritime view of things, that that uh, Eric uh, referred to. And we gave it a fancy ac academic term of the continental maritime dialectic. You all know what dialectic is. If you're an undergraduate in American college of my age, you could not escape uh, <laughs> understanding, understanding what that is. And, and our first sort of, well, I'll say sort of basic approach to it is how you're going to organize your great empire. You all remember Harold Mackinder, who wrote about he who dominates the heartland will control the world and uh, published this. And this point of view, by the way, fell into, uh, into real disuetude because everyone was reading the works of Alfred Thayer Mehan, as uh, Eric mentions. He who, who creates a, a kind of naval force of a certain kind will, will, um, will run the world. And then we were drawn to the example of, let's call it rising Japan, the rise of Japan, imperial Japan, where both of these visions of the future of the country, how to secure the realm, how to secure the uh, existed, came into conflict, and the conflict was never resolved. And some of you may remember that on the one hand, the Japanese could not decide whether to concentrate their efforts on the mainland of Asia or to fight the maritime province, uh, powers in the Pacific, and so decided to fight both and lost in both places. So we thought, well, maybe there is a lesson in this uh, somewhere that our friends are um, in, in uh, Beijing are paying attention to. Now, I myself uh, uh, like to borrow from uh, the discussion of someone named William Callahan, who teaches at the London School of Economics, who's written about the vision that informs uh, the grand Chinese view of things, but in very interesting ways. And the question is, what does the world look like? What is the order of the world, the world order? And lately, there has been re reappearing in the past several years in the Chinese, and let's use another academic term about this, shall we, discourse on these subjects, uh, a, a language, a vocabulary, a discourse, if you will, which he called Sinospeak. And, and, and Sinospeak is a way of talking about the world in traditional Chinese categories of power and hierarchy and organization and empire with the traditional view of the Tianxia all under heaven and the emperor and his munificence radiating outward from his court, as against what he calls rim speak. The rim speak is sort of Asia rim, Pacific century speak. 
and the conflict between these two things, these two vocabularies and ways of imagining the world. In, in, in the first volume of the book that, 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 that I wrote that Eric mentions, there's a, lo there's a lot of stuff about oceans focus and how we're going to reinvent area studies all over the world and give it an oceans focus and how all the cities of the world, you remember, you all remember Pacific Rim, you know, uh, Los Angeles and Vancouver and Tokyo and where am I leaving out, you know, Chile. And so, so the ocean, Pacific Ocean is going to be it. All these people are going to be, have a gigantic sort of version of the Hanseatic League and, and we're going to have, quote, the Pacific Century and we're go all going to speak Pacific Century speak or, or, or rim speak. And as Eric says, well, there's less and less of that kind of speak going on, even among us native speakers of this language, let alone the people who um, have, have adopted it. And so it is a sense that we're in a tra transitional period where we begin to imagine now the pre, let's call it the pre-maritime view of what a great global empire looks like. Pre-1500 view, pre-sea power view. Uh, a most startling development, you all remember when, when the Portuguese arrived in the small ships and transformed the entire economic and political and strategic structure of the world. And people kind of thought that these places in Central Asia were left to die on the vine and would be. Die on the vine forever. Now there's an odd confluence both of a crisis of confidence plus the domestic requirements of the Chinese Communist Party to perpetuate its, uh, its rule. <laughs> plus the, the pressures of a certain kind of cynic Islamic relationship, uh, plus a necessity, really, for PRC to become more involved in, from its point of view, the farther Near East rather than the closer Near East, involvements in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, and uh, places like this. And there uh, seems to be some controversy engined by our own Dr. Ben Carson as to whether or not the Chinese are in Syria, but it doesn't matter from the point of view of this kind of discussion. They're probably, they're probably a, a, uh, a, few, uh, a few there. So from this point of view, it's interesting to look at the one belt, one road strategy and the enormous amounts of money that are being invested in it, at least by announcement, and compare that with what are other forms of investment that are going on in China. Well, there seem to be two others that we can detect. The single most important is, of course, the enormous growth in the development of the internal security forces to keep order, especially in Muslim Xinjiang, which is now under a kind of lockdown. And uh, there may be, by some effort, uh, more than a million armed men uh, representing PRC in, in Xinjiang of all, of all different kinds and reports, uh, and reports of violence. The second is this enormous, remember, 46 billion for Pakistan and untold billions for the Asia Infrastructure Bank lots of commitments of money as against what's being spent on developing the Chinese Navy, which is a lot of money, and which is the kind of thing that we in the West notice most because it's the kind of thing that is most conspicuous for us. But the question is, does that really represent the long-term uh, uh, vision of, um, of the people who are in charge in, in PRC at the moment? Now, one of the, finally, I just say this is a way of trying to understand this relationship that's developing between China and Pakistan, aside from the question of the, neither of them much likes India, which seems to me is an, nothing, you know, which, uh, which is an important, important aspect of it. To what extent it is part of a larger strategy of involvement in the Islamic world, extension of Chinese influence out of necessity into a farther Near East where the structures of states 
The old state structure is crumbling. The Western powers are receding, and uh, they still are, aside from the 20 bombs that the French Air Force has recently dropped on Raqqa. And how the China then emerge, imagines itself uh, in, in, in this new configuration and whether or not it really has to be a giant maritime power in order to do it, or whether it can reach this area, uh, as, uh, as Eric suggests, by imagining corridors through Pakistan and corridors through other places also, through Kazakhstan, to take it to what, after all, is one of the core uh, strategic regions, three strategic regions of the world. And so we will are planning, I think, in future to look at this relationship, especially between China and Pakistan, uh, as what it, 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 it may portend, not merely for the future of Chinese calculation, but what it may, about this whole desire on the part of China to link itself to the Islamic world, either by land or by sea, or also by land and by sea, and what this means uh, for the maritime powers such as the United States and, to an extent, India and Japan. And I'll just say one other thing about this. I've gone on too long about it. Um, one thing we, we need to think about now, especially in the U.S., is the role of the, the maritime, the, the, you know, the four maritime powers or the three who are in the Pacific right now, how they should evaluate the meaning of this greater activity in Central and Southwest Asia on the part of, of, of PRC what it means to us, how we should respond to it, whether or not we should, as we say, get busier in that part of the world or not. Uh, you know, Prime Minister Abe was recently there, took a tour of the stands, promised a lot of money, uh, understanding that in some way the future of Japan and its security is implicated in what goes on in that part of the world. And on that point, I'll stop. And uh, thank you. Thank you. That was, that was terrific. Thanks, Charles. Uh, next, I wanted to ask uh, Lian Chao Han if he would be happy to speak. Um, Lian Chao is a fellow here at the Institute, a former Senate staffer as well, a sociologist, political scientist by training, um, uh, uh, also the vice president of a group called Initiatives for China, which is working to foster peaceful and democratic futures for, for China. Lian Chao. Thank you. Uh, as the most uh, uh, critical component of uh, China's new uh, Silk Road initiative, uh, the uh, 46-billion China-Pakistan economic corridor symbolize a beginning of China's strategic shift. But why is China doing this? Uh, more importantly, why, where uh, this CPEC will lead China to? Uh, war dominance, self-destruction, or nowhere. Uh, so I'm gonna, my, I'm gonna focus uh, uh, my talk on uh, what the Chinese have to see about it and what is my own assessment. Uh, most Chinese strongly support CPEC and some of the uh, uh, strategic thinkers, uh, scholars even, believe that this is the greatest strategic opportunity. I, uh, I once in a thousand year opportunity for China to regain the world dominance. It is not surprising because, uh, you know, in the past 30 years uh, that uh, China's uh, foreign aid policy changed a little bit, uh, more focused on 
practical uh, side, uh, more uh, de uh, deliberate, um, more practical, you know, focus more on the uh, return of capital investment. But essentially, this is still a top-down decision-making mechanism. So since Xi Jinping, the chairman of everything, took <laughs> power, the decision-making mechanism become you know, even more top-down and more rushed, far less predictable. Uh, Xi Jinping has already decided to go ahead with the CPEC. Anybody that expressed a different view will likely to be found uh, guilty of improperly you know, uh, discussing op openly uh, opposing government policy. The Xinjiang Daily chief editor is the example <laughs> of, uh, of that, that, uh, that crime. But uh, I think uh, the support is almost one-sided because of the government, because of Xi Jinping's decision. So most people would argue, most support would argue that this CPEC will allow China to counter, would be the best way for China to counter the U.S. pivot to Asia and uh, uh, without a head-to-head -head confrontation. They believe that U.S., through the uh, rebalance policy, the TPP, that try to encircle China. But CPEC will enable China to move into Middle East, Central Asia, Central Asia, and Africa. So by doing so, breaking China's, uh, break the U.S. incurment of China and uh, allow them to strike the U.S. at its weakest point where the U.S., power inference feeding away fast and I very uh, so get an uphand over the US. A very typical Chinese communist uh, strategy using the rural areas to encircle the city. By the new gained land power they can offset their sea power and uh, resolve the Malacca dilemma, so to speak, is securing the, their energy route. Uh, and thus, you know, if they control, they believe they control the region, they will control the world. And at the same time, I think they also believe that uh, this CPEC will effectively contain their common enemy, you know, Pakistan, China's common enemy, uh, rival, I would say, <laughs> uh, India and also help China secure its border, like Xinjiang, uh, the Muslim region, and by eliminating Uyghur uh, you know, threat, Uyghur terrorist threat once and for all. And I think the, another important argument they made is that China, this CPEC will continue to help China to expand economically, uh, and that find a new market for China's uh, overcapacity, overproduction capacity, 
and also get a better return of China's piling up four trillion foreign reserve. And uh, in and, and, and meantime, they will help China create a booming economy in the Chinese Western area. And in addition to that, they will provide strategic materials for China uh, to sustain long-term growth. And, uh, and, and of course, one important component is that is they trust Pakistan as all-weather friend that can protect and guarantee their investment. <laughs> and, and, and that's why the, you know, the, the, the one-sided support for CPAC is pretty overwhelming. But there are some uh, opposing views in China. Even it's very small, but still can, can be heard. I was told actually within the system, there are lots of people strongly opposing such an investment. But in public, you won't see any, you know, like a publication. Not very many, not very many articles you can find on the internet. Um, but the, 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 the opposing view basically saying that this is a, a rush of uh, Xi Jinping's rush of blood to the head decision. The uh, projects, many of the projects, they are not well studied, evaluated. There's no review and audit mechanism and uh, no open bidding process in place. So many of these, you know, it's, uh, many of these projects uh, will be, you know, be wasted. And they also think that uh, it doesn't make any economic sense because building that railroad pipeline and highway is going to be extremely difficult to build and to maintain. Because we know the Karakaram uh, highway closed only, they only use for half a year. And uh, because of the weather, the high, high altitude, they can't use the whole year around. Even with the expanded uh, you know, uh, highway, I doubt they're going to keep it open all year. And, uh, and last time they, they had this nice slide and blocked the highway, the KKH, for almost five years. And, 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 that's, uh, you know, and then the premise of uh, uh, Malacca you know, dilemma is also false. Because if U.S., they, they were thinking, because 6% of uh, China's oil uh, transported through Malacca Street, uh, the argument uh, for uh, the project says, you know, by going that way, we can avoid American, you know, blocking the Malacca Street. But the, uh, the opposing view says, if America can block Malacca, they can easily block Hormuz Street as well as uh, Guatar uh, Port. So it doesn't make any sense to, to, to just simply do it that way. And, uh, and then there's also another concern that, uh, you know, because of Pakistan's political instability, you know, the internal conflicts and uh, regional you know, like, uh, tension, uh, terrorist separatist movement, that this kind of uh, large investment could be become uh, the Nashihara loan. This is Nashihara loan is uh, uh, a Japanese loan, a large sum of Japanese loan, lend it to lend to uh, Chinese Beiyang warlord Duan Shizui government in 1970. 
And that when the new government formed in 1925, they, re they refused to re recognize that, that, that loan. And that default loan become one of the reasons that triggered the Japanese and Chinese war. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then they, uh, there's also an uh, argument, the opposing side argue, says that, you know, by building this uh, uh, corridor, you're going to enable more Muslims enter into Xinjiang uh, you know, region that create even bigger security problem for China. So my, my own view is this. I think this is uh, China's one stone, many birds strategy to create a China-led, a China-dominated international, new international relations and uh, a, a new world order. But because of China's paranoia about their uh, regime security, they kind of uh, uh, rushed to make that decision, not as rational as they should be, more based on, on the uh, geopolitical calculation than on sound economic principle. Um, and then this road more likely lead China to nowhere. That's, that's my assessment, because at least it won't go anywhere for a long while, because uh, I don't think that both sides are ready for that. Uh, Pakistan's political instability, regional you know, tension, racial tension, cultural and social problem, anyone can, can, can stop this, can derail this project. For example, uh, in April, when Xi Jinping was in Pakistan, officially signing you know, 51 MOUs and officially launched this project. And then a month later, in May, Pakistan all party conferences finally agreed to support it. You see that gap between the official launching the project and finally you know, Pakistanis have come out supporting it? So, and also I, I want to say, I want to point out um, China's own great uh, Western development program which officially announced 15 years ago, offered a very good reference point. Mm -hmm. Because lots of money invested, lots of roads built, uh, lots of uh, power plant built, and other infrastructure built. But so far, it does not generate a blooming, a booming economy. It failed to generate that, that economy. So the... Uh, I think the, the, the unlike traditional uh, foreign aid to Pakistan, this time the investment, it's an investment, not aid. China demand a higher return of their capitals. They want Pakistani government to guarantee that. And for example, there's a, a, a solar project near Karachi, which is uh, about uh, uh, cost, the capital cost is about $760 million. After all oh, the 7% uh, uh, fee, servicing fee, debt service fee, and other financial stuff, and also construction interest, it all added up 
they have to pay, Pakistani has to pay $950 million. So the, the interest rate during the construction will be as high as 33%. Yeah. So such of uh, uh, the, the investment will certainly create conflicts, create resentment from Pakistani you know, people. Um, and then at the same time, you know, uh, China, I don't think China can rely on their Iron Brothers' words to protect their interests because they had to suck into Pakistani, you know, the, their brother, their household, internal affairs, politics. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, a very dangerous entanglement, as history can tell us. And uh, I, I think there's a much better way to, for China to help Pakistan. China's own successful uh, 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 economic development in the early 80s offer a much better model because you don't build infrastructure. You, liber you use the liberalization, deregulation, create a better environment for the investors to come into your place. Like Taiwan, business people from Taiwan, from Hong Kong, from United States that bring factories, bring jobs, uh, bring technologies, bring capital, bring you know like uh, uh, management skill, uh, training, create a viable economy, and after that happened, the infrastructure that needed will follow. So it's much better way than building this corridor. And uh, you know that the, the the party still you know even the, the the whole party conference endorsed the the plan, but the their fight for the routes which way to go and the projects along the corridor never resolved. So I'm going to end my, my, uh, my talk by uh, using this uh, Shakespeare's warning. Neither a borrower <laughs> nor a lender, a lender for long uh, oft uh, loses you know, itself and friend. So China, when China tied their future to this very risky and dangerous, you know, like uh, unstable part of the world, they are most likely going to lose their shirt uh, in this gamble. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Dr. Pandey. Um, Eric, thank you. And um, wonderful to be on this All Hudson panel. I'll speak a little bit about India and New Delhi and how does New Delhi look at the Sino-Pak relationship. Um, on the one hand, if, if Pakistan stabilizes and you have a democratic, economically stable Pakistan, that would be ideal for India. However, there are things that Delhi fears. Um, first, um, Delhi is, is, is concerned that China's overall, this, the One Belt, One Road initiative is not benign, not only in Pakistan, but with other neighbors of India. Uh, China has invested and is building infrastructure in Sri Lanka, in Bangladesh, um, even Nepal, and further into Myanmar. So, um, that is the first part of India, of New Delhi's concern. Secondly, um, Delhi's been concerned about the Sino-Pak relationship for a long time now. The relationship dates back to 1950. Um, Pakistan was the first um, Muslim and non I think, uh, first Muslim country to, to, to acknowledge communist China. And so Chinese economic aid, investment has been coming in from 1950 onwards. However, the relationship has been very strong in the defense and nuclear arena, and that has concerned uh, Delhi predominantly. Um, 
there's something which uh, which Charles said which reminded me of how Pakistani uh, theorists and analysts look at China. Mekinda, yeah. um, they actually believe, uh, Pakistani analysts believe that Pakistan is the pivot of the world. And that draws from the rimland, uh, heartland, uh, that Pakistan is in the rimland area, and, uh, but that Pakistan is important. And so the belief that uh, not just United States, but that China would be interested in, invest in investing in Pakistan is something which is very old, dates back to 1950s and 1960s. Um, but coming back to something that uh, both Eric and uh, Lian Chao said, um, New Delhi's concerns are primarily that, that it's not going to be an st economically stable Pakistan which will result from, which will result from CPEC. It will be a Pakistan which has more or let's say more defense relationship with or a deeper defense relationship with China, uh, has a bigger conventional military and has more nuclear reactors and more nuclear material and that makes the entire region especially the India-Pakistan relationship, even more unstable than it currently is. Um, I'll stop there and Perfect. leave the rest for okay. questions. I just mentioned one, one thing quickly. Owen Lattimore, who was the uh, very well-known and uh, at one point politically controversial uh, great American authority on inner Asia, wrote a book called Xinjiang, Pivot of Asia, you see, and therefore of the world. So, Depending on what your, you know, the focus is of your grant application, that um, we all pivot to turn it into the, <laughs> turn it into the pivot of the world, and and uh, no problem there. So. Yeah. Terrific. Um, I, I'm curious. I wanted to ask Aparna and perhaps Lian Chao if they could speculate a little bit about what the possibility or the prospect of greater Chinese investment and involvement in Pakistan might mean for Pakistan's internal political development. Uh, I ask this in part because I recall, I guess it was the late 2008 when I was in uh, Islamabad and spoke to a Pakistani, retired Pakistani Corps commander. We were speaking about Balochistan as well as the looming energy crisis that Pakistan was suffering from at the time and which has only gotten worse. And the commander said to me that the Pakistani army, um, that the discipline in the ranks was beginning to break down at the time because uh, it was increasingly more difficult for officers to direct their soldiers to open fire on Baluch separatists. Um, and that this was becoming a much, much more difficult um, uh, strategic policy for the Punjabi elite in Pakistan to pursue, that is, rest bringing uh, state power to, to Baluchistan going forward. For that reason, I was struck that when the CPEC uh, deal was formally announced, uh, it was also announced, uh, Nawaz Sharif had said that uh, Pakistan would raise uh, a security force of upwards of 12,000 Pakistani uh, security uh, agents um, to help protect Chinese workers who would be building out this infrastructure into, among other places, Balochistan and in other places. Now, of course, this security force would be green, um, it would be uh, certainly not the same forces which the Pakistani Corps commander had told me about that were losing uh, discipline and losing uh, desire to, to, to involve themselves in Balochistan back in 2008. So my question is, I mean, even if the great Chinese road through Pakistan does not realize itself, and even if these investments do not amortize and, and bring returns back, the, still, the prospect of this investment still has implications 
for the internal balance of power between various Pakistani factions and within the government itself. I'm curious what you think um, uh, the next few years might have in, in store for us uh, as a consequence of this. Just a few points, and then um, one is, uh, I mean, as Lianjo mentioned, there's still a disagreement within Pakistan and Pakistani power centers on where exactly and which province will get more of the, the projects which are coming in. Uh, Mr. Sharif and as well as his brother in, in, in Lahore would like more of them coming to Punjab. Um, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa would like uh, more of the projects. And so, um, so there is still a disagreement which of the four Pakistani provinces, and in some ways it's Punjab versus the rest. Yeah. There's a belief that because the, Mr. Sharif's party dominates Punjab, um, and that's where most of the economy, most of the businesses, that, it, that Punjab may actually end up benefiting from, from, uh, from CPEC. Second issue is that uh, in Baluchistan, uh, where the port Gwadar, because I mean, the ideal would be that everything should move towards Gwadar so that you, you land up on the Persian Gulf or the Gulf of Hormuz. Uh, however, the Baloch insurgents and Baloch ha are not in favor and have never been in favor of foreign investment coming in. Uh, they protested even when Gwadar port was being built by China many years ago, mm -hmm. and they have continued their protest. Even they're still not agreed or accepted. Um, that's the second problem which China is going to face in CPEC. Third, uh, you mentioned um, in 2008. I was actually in Pakistan in, uh, in July 2008 when the Red Mosque siege took place. And at that time, the Pakistan army was concerned both with the fact that there were people who were not very happy, I mean, within the army, that they were actually having to go against Islamists who for many yeah. decades had been seen as their allies. So not just the Baloch insurgents, it was going against people who were from Punjab or, or Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, and they were having rebellion in some of their uh, regiments in the tribal areas. Um, and in some cases, if you recall at that time, some of the soldiers were actually kidnapped by, uh, by groups in the federal in the Fata region because the soldiers refused to fight uh, those people. Um, and finally, um, you mentioned the, the power problem. One of the problems, Pakistan has had an electricity problem for almost, power problem for almost three or four decades now, 1990s. Every Pakistan civilian government which comes in has tried to resolve it. Yeah. They tried to do it in the early 1990s. They actually got foreign investors who would come in and set up what is called independent power projects. The problem was in the 1990s, every two years, governments changed. <laughs> and the succeeding government refused to recognize the, the previous government's promises. Um, and so no foreign company was willing to therefore go back in and lose, as uh, GE and others had done in the early 1990s. Um, in the last five, seven years, the civilian governments have again tried to bring in, but the problem is that you need to provide that stability and promise that any project which which starts now will continue, yeah. um, and it will have both economic stability as well as government stability. Right, right. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to you're going to see uh, more uh, uh, regional tension uh, in Pakistan to fight for the projects, and uh, I, I think the. Uh, few months ago, they have uh, their poor uh, province went to the parliament, uh, demonstrate in front of the parliament, they hold a big banner, you know, uh, China-Pakistan friendship, no China-Pakistan.
Punjab friendship. Yeah. Yeah. So that sells. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you know, lots of uh, the project goes to the you know uh, prime minister's uh, uh, province. Yeah. Yeah. So that will will create lots of tension. And uh, and uh, also, I think uh, the uh, energy, even they build the projects because of the investment cost, the uh, electricity is going to be more expensive yeah. than they used to pay. So that will also create some kind of resentment uh, you know, uh, in that country. Yeah, yeah. Charles, yeah. one thing about, Yen um, uh, very interesting point about the relationship to all of this to a policy initiative in PRC in the late 90s called Go West Policy. And the idea was to build up the western part of the country and to deal with these awful problems of income inequality and so on. It turns out, I think, I don't know, but one suspects that the central government for a while had a very hard time bringing that part of Western now China proper to heal. You'll remember those pay attention to these sorts of things. That back in, I guess it was 2013, there was a fellow named Bo Xilai who built up a great power base out in Sichuan province, which is the Western part of the country. And he was brought down in the who knows how much of this is true, but it was a wonderfully lurid kind of tale where his wife poisoned her British lover and he was guilty of all kind of corrupt and so on and so forth. And then he was brought down. And it turns out, of course, reading between the lines of the current anti-corruption campaign, that all the people who were in, and must have been a very large plot, because it brought down the retired min former minister of men who ran the secret police who had gotten to run the secret police because he had once run the National Oil Company and had built up an astonishing slush fund for paying off people, one assumes. And this whole anti-corruption thing, it's all the people who were involved somehow in some way, you know, lieutenant generals in the PLA in the Western military region taken down during all of this, which just even now there's a problem of bringing this, uh, what we China lodge, you know, traditionally restive area uh, um, uh, under control. So I think that's another interesting uh, perspective on all of this is the use of this sort of thing somehow to develop greater political power for the new party central elite in this part of the country where it's been having its problems. And I do want to praise, just one thing, I do want to praise my colleague Lian Chiao for it. It's been a long time since I, China history major, heard the name of Wan Chi Rei and his sidekick, I saw Wu Pei Fu from the old Beiyang <laughs> World. See, the old Beiyang World. We used to have to know this stuff in the old, in the old China studies. In the new China studies, of course, we don't. But I'm, I, so I appreciate that uh, bit of sinological nostalgia there. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, let's have some questions, sir. Thank you. Uh, David Isby. Uh, conspicuous by its absence from all four very interesting statements is Afghanistan, the heart of Asia. Uh, in recent <laughs> years, uh, there has been uh, thought in Kabul that China's policy towards Afghanistan is changing from basically backing up Pakistan's actions in that country to one which... Uh, shows its own security concerns of Islamic terrorism mm -hmm. and uh, investment. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you, is this going, do you think this will actually be realized or will China's interest in Afghanistan be primarily in supporting Pakistan in the future? Um, Lian Chao or Charles, would you? Or? 
you know, I'm trying to remember, it's all, so it's getting very fuzzy in my mind, but when we, uh, Eric and I first got interested in this, the man who purported to be, mind you, Hu Jintao's principal uh, advisor on Central Asian Affairs, you remember this fellow, came through town and visited all of the think tanks and was telling us about how China was now prepared to play finally a very constructive role in Afghanistan and had bought this great big copper mine and bribed yes. everyone in, 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 in Afghanistan in order to get it and, 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 and so on. So we're always hearing these stories about an act and the problem for the U.S. of course is, is, is sort of akin to, and I don't want to start any trouble here, but it's sort of akin to this problem now that you know, with the Russians and ISIS. Well, we don't like the Russians, but maybe they'll help us with it. Now we don't like the Chinese. Do we want to build up their influence in Afghanistan to find some way for ourselves to get out? Yeah, and this, so this sort of thing is, is, uh, seems to be going on all the time. I'll defer to people who actually know about all these intrigues yeah. in, in Pakistan. Parna, would you like to? Um, what, is, what has changed recently and happened is that China has actually come in on what are called the, the Taliban uh, peace talks. So, I mean, what people believe is that China um, has managed to convince Pakistan that Chinese investment in Pakistan, um, in view of that, China, Pakistan needs to help stabilize not only its own country, but also Afghanistan. Um, and so in the Taliban peace negotiations and talks, there are Chinese um, who are present. It's not just Americans, but Chinese, Pakistan, Afghan representatives, and Taliban representatives. Um, how much of an influence China uh, is able to exert on Rawalpindi and how much influence Rawalpindi is able to exert on the Taliban uh, representatives is still uh, up in the air, primarily since we got to know only a few months ago that Mullah Omar was supposed to be alive for two years, actually passed away two years ago. And so his people who represented him didn't actually represent him. Um, and so there's that thing there. But China has started to play an active role um, in Afghanistan, um, and uh, I believe from, I mean, something which China would like a stable Afghanistan, but I leave China to Lian Chang. I think you're right. I totally agree. I think China is uh, it's in the best interest of China to, to stabilize uh, Afghanistan, particularly after uh, U.S. totally withdraw. Uh, and uh, China, I think, I heard they uh, privately pay uh, Taliban, you know, to stay away from uh, uh, their poverty, you know, <laughs> their minds. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the factor of ISIS, it's unknown, it's uncertain. Uh, I think it's in China's best interest to, you know, join hands with uh, the, the America, uh, with other you know, countries to uh, eliminating the ISIS uh, influence expansion in Afghanistan. Uh, but that is an unknown factor. I don't think mm -hmm. China can control that uh, at this point. Ma'am. Hi, I'm Catherine Porter with the Leadership Council for Human Rights. Thank you, wonderful presentation. I have a simple question, but it's probably the most complex question. I've been working very hard with the Baluch and the Sindh in Pakistan, trying to unify them. It seems to me that this coalition between China and Pakistan will be built on the bones of those people. We need to look at that much more hardly. And secondly, it's the US funding of the ISI which is killing those same people. Why can't we bring some definition 
to what we get from Pakistan in terms of response. And I have been on the ground there extensively. So I, I would be interested in your reaction to that. Thank you. Anna? I guess um, I'll take your second question first. Um, Why hasn't US changed its policy in 50s, 55 years is something I don't know if anybody can actually answer. But if you actually look at, but if you look at the US archives, you see that every American administration coming in believes that it must do something and give more money in aid to Pakistan. And every president in his last year, up till now, he uh, decides <laughs> that uh, that no, it's not, it's not good and it's not going anywhere. But we'll have to wait for the next president to see if this if this cycle actually changes. Uh, coming back to your first question, um, I mean. Pakistan, I mean, one of the things which both Lian Chao and I pointed out is that Pakistan, one of the problems China is going to face in Pakistan is that is there is not just regional but ethnic. Um, they're not just separatist movements. They're also the fact that, that all the ethnic linguistic groups in Pakistan, except for the Punjabis, actually believe that they have not been provided um, enough representation in any arena, uh, whether it be military, academia, um, or otherwise, and so they do feel that they are neglected, they haven't got enough investment. Not just Chinese, even foreign investment doesn't come into these areas. Um, there are human rights issues, um, but I think, I mean, it, I do believe that um, international agencies and the US government are talking about it, but it's, it's something which, takes, which will take a long time, and um, I hear you on what you said. Can I just add? Yeah. Sure. I think the uh, U.S. lack of uh, uh, grand strategy uh, towards Pakistan. Uh, in the past, maybe 28 or billion or 30 billion, the aid, military, you know, uh, humanitarian, uh, that are given to the Pakistan. But they don't focus on strengthen Pakistan's you know, democracy, uh, rule of law, respect to human rights. I think we don't have that uh, uh, strategy how to do it. Uh, without uh, this grand strategy, you cannot stabilize Pakistan. And I think, uh, you know, U.S. need to uh, have uh, a better strategy, uh, strengthen the rule of law, uh, strengthen the democracy system, and uh, respect human rights. And then they can fundamentally, you know, uh, stabilize Pakistan. Yeah. I'll add that yeah, I mean, the, the relationship between the U.S., uh, as our colleague Hussein Haqqani has written in a fantastic book, has been based upon magnificent delusions that we've each told ourselves about the other, number one. I also tend to think that U.S.-Pakistan uh, relations and U.S. policy toward Pakistan has not been driven by principles or any sense of a grand strategy, but really by the bureaucracies and by bureaucratic inertia. And now I think you're seeing in the United States a desire on both sides of the political spectrum to reorganize our policy towards South Asia as a whole, uh, something that would bring about a sort of recentering, a shift away from Islamabad and Rawalpindi toward New Delhi, whether that will open up an opportunity for much greater clarity about the real human rights abuses that are taking place in Pakistan or not, I don't know. I should hope that it does. Um, my own view is precisely yours, that one of the areas of collusion, if you will, between certain elements of the Beijing regime and the one in Islamabad uh, is that both of them see each other as, as uh, 
co-conspirators, if you will, in facilitating their domination of their peripheries, of their ethnic peripheries. Uh, I tend to think that the possibility of federal stabilization in Pakistan, a political solution, if you will, to the problems that the Baluch face, or the problems that the Gilgit Baltistanis face, and even to the problems that the Pashtun face, um, that that possibility of a federal stabilization uh, it becomes increasingly unlikely the more uh, China, uh, China's uh, uh, investment uh, uh, works its way into the country. Um, uh, I also tend to think that, uh, that both uh, elements in the Pakistani regime and in the Chinese regime uh, want to build their relationship uh, simply because they see their immediate purpose consolidating control in China's case over Xinjiang and in Pakistan's case over Baluchistan. I think that that really is the intermediary objective of this, of this alliance. Can I just add one quick point? Yeah. I think the, the reason we don't have that grand strategy because the folks very short-sighted on just uh, get rid of the Taliban, you know, but after so many years, the Taliban still very, you know, <laughs> popular there, you know. Uh, so I think the uh, U.S. needs to review its uh, uh, strategy, uh, how to deal with uh, Pakistan, you know, really strengthen, you know, the democracy uh, rule of law yeah. to move forward. our new ambassador to um, uh, United Nations Human Rights Commission in Geneva is uh, Cherokee. We've discussed extensively indigenous issues as are the Baluch and many other people. He was, and I asked him to meet with some Baluch leaders, he was told by his boss that he couldn't do that because if we criticize Pakistan in any way, the UN would be forced to remove all of their projects on the ground. Now, somewhere we have to rethink our larger ability to work in the State Department and in the world. And I, I just wanted to put that out there. Thank you. Thank you. Sir, um, you can wait for a moment for the mic to make it to you. Thank you. A um, couple quick comments. One, I think it's a mistake to say that we could create a grand strategy that will stabilize Pakistan. Um, and just to offer an exception to Aparna's presidential compulsion to aid Pakistan, Clinton, Bill Clinton entered office without that compulsion. They were under sanction at the time. But um, oh, I'm Alan Kronstadt from the Congressional Research Service. And I, I, I think I wanted to make a comment and ask a question. But the comment is mostly about conceptualizing this. And I was so happy that you emphasize that China is investing in Pakistan, that this is not a foreign aid program. And I think it's a big mistake to conceive of this as foreign assistance. Um, Pakistan acts you know, with a lot of self-interest in this regard, and it's, inv it's investment. And so, like for instance, there's an implicit comparison between US aid and, and, and Chinese investment that's promised. At the time that the CPEC was announced, uh, there were headlines running about $46 billion from Pakistan or, or from China as opposed to roughly $30 billion from the U.S. That's really apples and oranges. Um, you're talking about, never mind that half the $30 billion is reimbursements for military support, <laughs> but um, you're talking about $30 billion given to Pakistan, grants, versus $46 billion being talked about given to Pakistan in the future. And as Aparna mentioned, there's nothing new about Chinese investment in Pakistan. This, this rhetorical romance and commercial relationship has been going on for decades. 
So I think it's important to make that distinction. So the question I had, though, and it's kind of related, the, the, Chi the Chinese-Pakistani uh, people-to-people relations seem very thinly developed. Mm -hmm. And you don't see um, Pakistanis uh, buying homes in, in Shanghai and Beijing. You don't see uh, parents sending their children to college in China. So I'm wondering to what extent that kind of limited people-to-people -people relationship fundamentally limits the, the kind of investment relationship or alliance that, that the two countries can have, despite all the sweet, honey-laced rhetoric about their eternal friendship. Thanks. Mian Chao, you want um, to take a stab at that? I, I think uh, if you look at the media uh, on the Chinese side, uh, and even the Pakistani side, you see lots of this romantic you know, view of uh, old weather, friendship, iron brotherhood, but in fact, I think, uh, you know, uh, as you said, the people-to-people -people exchange is not as that great. And China even don't have enough uh, Pakistani scholars who study Pakistan. So the China really don't understand the culture, the country. And uh, I think in a deeper sense, Chinese usually look down on Pakistani people because they think they're backward. And also, if you look at the, 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 the highway, KKH, most of this one-way you know, trade, you don't see that from other side you know, come to this way. So that type of uh, uh, relationship, and also you see the, the, when they build the projects, you always bring Chinese uh, you know, workers to work on the projects, even chefs. You know, they bring their own chefs yeah. in Africa. In their, you know, but when China opened up before, you don't see... You know, Taiwanese bring their you know, workers to work in you know, Shenzhen, you know, their own management, their own you know, technology. So that one-way uh, mm -hmm. uh, kind of uh, trade, I think, uh, harmed the people-to-people -people exchange. Uh, but I, I, I would say China has, since then, put more emphasis on the study. You know, they set up a language um, programs, um, you know, in the past few years, and more and more people studied, studied uh, the Urdu. And, uh, and uh, lots of think tanks also set up in the university to study that region. So you will see more and more people-to-people -people exchange, because if they want to make this successful investment, they have to. Charles? I think I'm going to say that the scale, scope, and imagination of uh, uh, PRC objectives in Pakistan has grown quite a lot over the years. So in the beginning, it was, it seems to me, kind of India-focused and kind of focused. And it's only lately, really, I think, that this, this idea of Pakistan's involvement in a great PRC undertaking to connect itself to all of the, it has, has, come, has come to the fore. Uh, and this, this business of people-to-people -people, uh, relations, you know, uh, when Eric and I started getting interested in this kind of stuff. I was intrigued by a phenomenon that I call kind of Chinese Orientalism, as distinct from Edward Said Orientalism. And the, the uh, if you like, the characterization of Islam and Muslims in the Western world is more or less the same in China, only more so. All right? I know. Islam as a, as, as, as a creed is very hard to, at least in the West, it, can be said to derive from Western religious teachings, 
no such, you know, the, 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 the traditional Chinese statecraft, which is anti-religious and anti-superstition and all the rest of these things, uh, finding this increasingly hard and very, very difficult to understand, to fathom, much harder. You know, people go on like this, but, but, but the study of the Near East and Islam is well established in the, in the, in the Western world, in the European world. Been chairs of it for a long time in Oxford and uh, Germany and to a lesser extent France. And still, what it reduces to, especially in the popular mind, this is all unfathomable, it's unreasonable, these people are crazy, you can't deal with them, and, and, and it's only more so uh, with the allowance of my friend Lian Cho, it's with, with, with the overlay of traditional uh, Chinese, uh, well, racism, uh, uh, haughtyism. Uh, and, and sort of looking down on everybody and everything. And so I think this is a, an enormously complicating factor at, any, at every level. Uh, and we are, we are happy to see the rise of the, you know, Islamic, Islamic studies in, in China, but that hasn't made much of, an, uh, much of an impression at all, I would think. Thank you. Time for one more question. Now. Remember, you ask one question, you get four answers. So. <laughs> Hi, I'm Juliet, and I'm an intern here. And I just had a few questions about um, what China has prepared, I guess, for a backup plan. So let's just, I mean, that's really laid back terminology. I apologize. But let's just say that Pakistan does eventually start to fall out of favor with the Chinese ideas and become uncomfortable with them, you know, and their strategy. And what are they planning to do about the way India feels about their project? Thanks. I don't know <laughs> what the backup plan is. I mean, I think part. I think the problem may be more not may not be that Pakistan may not do what China wants in the economic <laughs> arena, but that Pakistan may be incapable of doing certain things that China expects it to do with regard to what Liancha said. You know, about providing stability, about providing. Um, the 10,000 or 12,000 strong force about um, helping them sort of, you know, get back some return on investment which they are going to invest in, in Pakistan. Um, I mean, there are a lot, I mean, there have been over the years many foreign investors who have wanted to invest in Pakistan, but they've not really been able to get the, the, the stable, secure environment where they will get return on investment. And so I think that's where the problem with Pakistan will come. And the rising radicalization of the society, Islamization, uh, the growth of ISIS in the region, um, and the other groups. I think that may be a bigger problem. And that may mean that Pakistan cannot deliver what China is expecting. Yeah, I think they also, uh, uh, the, the CPAC, the plan itself, uh, last year, the whole year, China and Pakistan, you know, uh, arguing about yeah, what to do, you know, back and forth, back and forth. Finally, they, they recognized, I mean, realized, uh, materialized this year, but there are lots of issues has not been resolved. Like uh, the railroad, they're still in the stage of, uh, of uh, you know, like a study, feasibility study uh, stage. So China can easily, you know, uh, uh, back up uh, uh, that investment because all the investment eventually has to be found, I mean, raised by, one of this uh, Silk Road found. Uh, so they, if they didn't get enough, if they don't get enough funding, you know, we don't have enough you know, uh, investors that are interested in this. 
and they can also back off that way. Uh, but I don't think they, it seems to me they want press ahead, but which one, they already approved so many, you know, over probably dozen, maybe 15 projects that's already under construction. So I think they're gonna uh, push ahead uh, regardless. Uh, this is more, as I said, geopolitical uh, than <laughs> economic only. Charles? Let me just, just say briefly, I, I think it's the case now, let's say the United States these days and uh, you know, certainly in West Europe, that the feeling is that projects undertaking, undertaken in the, in the Islamic world don't pan out, or they don't pan out with the ease and facility with which one thought, or those, that particular game may not be worth, uh, worth the candle. Why one should think that, 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 that PRC, which is in every way, uh, less well equipped to operate in, the, in in this part of the world than uh, than the Western powers are, or the U.S. or the or the or the, or the British or anyone else should. Um, I'm I'm going to learn from the Ancho how you say in Mandarin boots on the ground. <laughs> uh, but you know the first ten thousand guys you need to protect your forty six. You know and and, and 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 so it goes. And I suppose I'm struck by the fact to that these enormous schemes and plans and ambitions that, that POC has laid out for itself, not only in Africa, but in Latin America and, and in the Near East and so on, you know, seem, seem not, to be working, uh, not to be working out with the ease and uh, comfort which they had thought they might. And there are many examples of this now in Latin America and Africa and in, uh, and in other places. So we just have to see how this develops and what it means to the future of this uh, of this, of, 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 well, of the global distribution of influence and power, which I think is what we ought to be interested in. Yeah. So I just want to add one more uh, point. I read this article from a, a scholar in China. He said, if we fail, uh, the CPEC fail, it's not a big deal. We learn our lessons. 46 billion is not a big deal. We have four trillion, you know, four reserves there. <laughs> well, on that note, we'll see how this, uh, how this evolves. Uh, thank you very much. For all of you for being here, thanks for coming. Thank you. We'll revisit this again, I'm sure, before the year's out. So thank you all. <laughs>